And we left off last week where David had his great victory against Goliath. He is serving in the house of Saul. David goes out and fights the battles for Israel. King Saul becomes jealous of David. God had rejected Saul and sent a distressing spirit to him. And then God poured out his spirit on David and he put the two of them together. So as one has a fading glory and is going insane, the other is being refined by the one who's going insane to become the man of God he's meant to be. And where one was a king and a ruler and really a, a, a tyrant and a totalitarian, authoritarian, the other is going to be the shepherd with a heart for God and really serve God's people in a wonderful way as a, as a shepherd, which David was with real sheep, his dad's sheep. But he always looked upon his role as a king when he became king that that he was a shepherd of God's people, and that's a beautiful thing. So with that background, this conflict is building, and there's this tension where Saul is jealous of David, he distrusts David, and of course there's Saul's son, Jonathan, who is best friends with David, because David and Jonathan are totally like-minded because they're, they're men of faith, they go for it, they charge it, and they, 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 they both are very like-minded, and Jonathan realizes and knows that David ultimately is the one that God's going to call to be king, not himself. But Saul is not thinking that way at all. And so this, this, these conflicts are building in the coming chapters, and they're going to be the dominant theme as we press into the 20s, or the chapters of the 20s. So with that background, chapter 20, verse 1, we read this. Then David fled from Noath in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing either great or small without first telling me. And why should my father hide this from me? Is it not so? Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your, side, in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly... As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. Then David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And if he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, far be it from me, from you. But Jonathan said, far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me? What if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So both of them went out into the field, and then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. And when I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow, or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord will be with you as he been with my father." And you shall not only show me kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it of the hand of David enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone of Ezel. And when I, then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say, thus says the young man, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which I have spoken of, you and I, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. So this is a, a narrative in this chapter, a fair bit of dialogue here of this event with David and Jonathan. Remember, they're great friends. They both love the Lord. And 
we talked about the, the value of true friendship last, last week when we studied David and Jonathan in detail. And so, again, this theme is, is running here, and, and it's running through these chapters. And it's, it's all, it's like a drama. It's all tied together. And so, David is fearing for his life that the man that he loves and serves, King Saul, is trying to kill him. And he's already thrown the spirit at him a couple times and tried to kill him in the palace. And David's, we, we saw last week that David behaved wisely in the midst of those circumstances. He's the general over the army. Like, he's the amazing guy leading these victories. And he has to act like things are normal when they're anything but normal. It's a very difficult situation that he was in. And in the midst of this conversation, there's a couple things that come out that really get our attention. And certainly verse 3 is one of them. It's a fairly well-known text of the Old Testament. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And that is a very true statement for all of us here tonight. We need to be reminded in application that there is but a step between me and eternity, you and eternity. That's why memorials are good. They remind us of eternity. The memorial yesterday reminds me of eternity. And as I shared at the memorial for Ethelin Sr., when they're doing the slideshow, I'm crying for, so, I don't know why I'm crying for so many different reasons, because I've done memorials there before, or I'm thinking about, like, I'm a grandfather, she was a grandmother, the adult grandkid kid shared, my grandkids will probably share it, mine. Like, there's so much different things that you think. I'm like, I don't need much to make me cry, because I tend to wear my emotions on my sleeves for, for better, for worse at times. But I think it's good to be tender when you're, when you're at Rose Hills in Whittier, when you're in a cemetery, or yet a memorial, or a graveside. When you see a casket that's going to be put in the ground, I think it's important to grasp that moment and be reminded you're going to be put in the ground, or scattered at sea, or there, there is an end. Death's success rate is 100%, except for, you know, Enoch. And, and I mean, Jesus came to conquer death, and he did, but we still have to face it. So instead of getting the substance of death, we get the shadow. And that's why we're told in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. But we are all one step from eternity. It's interesting because when you watch people deal with terminal illness, the process by which they kind of calibrate that they're, of their mortality. And you older people, you've watched this with so many people. And it might be difficult for a nine-year-old like Trinity Jameson to grasp with her mortality when she had the brain tumor. How does a nine-year-old... It's like math. There's, there's four-year-old math, there's fourth-grade math, and there's college calculus, right, or trigonometry. And it's like that with the Lord. But what the beauty with the Lord is we're, we're to have the faith of a child in the first place. So however great intellect or great things you might accomplish, we always need a childlike faith to trust in the Lord no matter what he's doing. But when you grapple with the reality of an impending death with a terminal illness, a 10-year-old's going to grapple with it differently than a 20-year-old. I mean, watching Trinity Jameson fade with her brain tumor and the gospel track she put together to pass out to other kids at Children's Hospital, I still have mine that from that time I did her memorial on December 4th years ago. She had to accept instead of being on the playground in fourth grade, that she's going to glory to be with Jesus. I baptized her the year before at Little Corona, and then next year later she came down in a wagon with her dad pointing it because she couldn't walk because the, the neuro effects of the brain tumor. And she watched Eliza Wilkerson, who now is a man, and goes to our church, watched him get baptized as a kid. And when I baptized Elijah Wilkerson, I got on my knees like I do when I'm talking to younger kids. And I said, you, you do know what you're doing today? And he goes, yes, I do. I go, you know, Trinity got baptized last year. And he goes, yes, I do. And Elijah got baptized that day. Trinity stepped into eternity a few months later. And Elijah Wilkerson has been walking with the Lord ever since. We need to know that we're one step from eternity. When Melissa and in camp, Jeremy Kemp's first wife stepped into eternity, I always tell the story about when she actually stepped into eternity, and I shared it yesterday, graveside. But one of the stories I don't tell is when Jeremy and uh, Melissa came back from their honeymoon in Hawaii. They went to the North Shore, Haleiwa, where I used to surf and hang out as a pro surfer. Beautiful photos of their, their honeymoon. I was at their wedding at North County, Horizon North County, I thought, Botsford. It was beautiful. Large wedding, too, hundreds of people. But when they came back, they got a little apartment in Carlsbad. 
And it's sort of between like kind of the opposite of where Legoland is of Canon there and they had this apartment. And it was, you know, they're honeymooners, you know, it's like really cute. It's like what you dream of, you know, when you get married and like you got, uh, Jeremy's going to be a worship, he's going to be this music guy and just getting his traction. And, and I was able to go to their place a couple times. And I grew up in Carlsbad, so I thought it was very, you know, it's kind of cool, this kid from Indiana and his beautiful wife and there they are. But then the cancer came back. And I always remember before she really faded and it became apparent that she was terminal, there was a night that we were there, and, and there's a few other people there, and Jeremy was leading worship for his wife. He was leading her in worship. And I mean, can you imagine, like, Jeremy Camp's leading private worship for you, but he's your husband. And I was allowed to be in that room for that worship. And she was very weak. And I'll tell you what I always remember. About two or three songs into it, it's like, you're just, you're just there. Like, you're just invited in this special place where it's like holy ground. Do you know what I mean? Like, something holy is happening here, and you're in the place. And I'll never forget this, but her, she was so frail, but I remember her raising her hand in praise to the Lord from her bed. We're just one step from eternity, body of Christ, human race, worship generation. Just one step. As you get older, you come to terms with your mortality. As young people, you don't think that way. When you get older, you realize you come to terms with your mortality. Or if death is faced upon you, then you have to grapple with it. At some point, you, and I mentioned this too, the famous landmark book by Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, a whole entire chapter is dedicated to the fears that human beings live with. And haven't we watched fear cripple people in the last two years, like beyond measure? And fear and faith are opposite. They can never coexist. But he points out those fears, that the big ones down the backstretch are fear of failing health and or physical pain, Fear of growing old and fear of death. But unlike Napoleon Hill, I can give you the answers to conquer those fears. Because you're still leaving your wealth behind if you think and grow rich, because that's temporal wealth. But Jesus is the one where we're told perfect love casts out all fear, and God, Jesus Christ is love, because God is love, we're told. And where there's love, there's no fear. So the balance of being one step from eternity is this, and this is critical. Because some people, all they see is the end of the world, so they're always one step from eternity. And it's dangerous because they never live in time. By the way, Pastor Chuck's message from 40 years ago, he talks about this. The great danger of being so consumed that you're one step from eternity that you don't live in the moment of today. And it there's a balance because it's Maranatha, the Lord's coming, and Jesus said to be watching, be ready. So we should always live each day like we're one step from eternity, yet there's this great reality that we have to live our life, and we need a, a future and a hope and a vision for tomorrow. Habakkuk was told in the darkest of days, write the vision, make it plain, so he or she who reads it can run with it. So there's a balance. It's a very, you, you hold it loosely, that we have to know we're one step from eternity. And we might have a chance to grapple with it and come to terms with it with an illness or a fading health, even as Christy Estes had a fading health. Or it might come suddenly. There was a guy named Dane Gora. He grew up on the North Shore. He served pipeline. His dad was in charge of all the North Shore lifeguard rescue. And in 1979, I was living at log cabins just down the beach from Pipeline. And there was a day at Pipeline that was very stormy and just kind of evil. The surface would say it was wonky, but it was dangerous wonky. It was about 10 to 12 feet. And I would almost surf Pipeline under any condition. That day, I was like, uh, I don't know, man. This is pretty treacherous right now. And, and I didn't surf it. And then a few hours later, I got the word, and you start hearing the helicopters, that someone was missing at Pipeline. They had to wipe out. And that whole night, I'll never forget it, you heard the helicopters going back and forth looking for the missing person. It was Dane. And just by the most random thing, two days later, it was stormy. It was a a very wet winter that year on the North Shore. I walked down to the beach. What's log cabins, the rocks, so it's going toward Pipeline. Pipeline's about 300 yards this way. I'm coming from this way, coming from Haleiwa, going toward Kahuku. And I walked down, and the very moment I came to check the surf, his body washed up. 
And his family was there. They'd been camped out on the beach. I was 18 years old. So you can come to terms with it when you see it coming like a slow-moving freight train on a, when you're driving across country on the 10 through eastern Arizona, or it can come at you so fast you never saw it. See, I drive the 10, and those trains, you can see them a mile away, and they're moving slow, and those freight trains are on the 42. You see them? They're always coming and going. They're like three miles long, and they're slow. But let me tell you something. You go to Japan, and the bullet train, it's quiet, and it's going 200 miles an hour. And there's a line, and you don't go past that line. And I'm telling you, I was standing there three years ago at a terminal, and that bullet train came by. It's not Amtrak station in Irvine or Santa Ana or Oceanside. I mean, it was like, like an airplane with no noise. And that's how you are, one step from eternity. It can be that slow-moving freight train in eastern Arizona that you see for miles. Or it can be that bullet train that comes so fast you never saw it and you're gone. You're surfing pipeline one day, you catch the wrong way, that's it. It's over. Or you're going to fight for your life with a terminal illness. And it could be a long battle. Pastor Jeff Johnson in Downey has cancer. And I spoke with Pastor Art Reyes today, who's pretty much the replacement pastor. And Art told me that Jeff began chemotherapy if you've ever watched chemotherapy, been a part of chemotherapy, you want nothing to do with chemotherapy. But if that's your best chance to live at that point in time, that's what you might do. This is a powerful text that reminds us that. So, so body of Christ, here's how we have to look at it. We, we might be like looking at a slow-moving freight train. We've got a lot of time to see eternity and get ready for it. We might have many years in front of us, like Jacob or Billy Graham or Bob Hope. He lived to be 100 or we might have very few years in front of us, or even months, or even days. We literally might just be one step. So this is my counsel for my own life, how I see it all. We need to live like it is our last day, but we need to have a plan like we're going to be around for a while. We need to find that balance. Because Jesus said, who is that good and faithful wise servant whom his master finds when he returns? So he's looking for faithful stewardship to be about the Father's business and being faithful with the things of the kingdom and the things of life, and that's what's entrusted to us. So there is a doing and an occupying of things to be accomplished with the upper call of God in Christ Jesus, God working in us and through us for his good pleasure and his will. But we got to know it, it can be over at any moment. What I do before I go to bed every night is I review what is the most important thing of the next day. It's the MIT. And if I got a few MITs, I have the TMIT, the most important thing. Because most important thing could be doing this for my dad, doing this and doing that. So I might have five of them. But just in case I get lost on what I'm doing on Wednesday on the 27th, I have the most important thing, TMIT. Or I also have the next thing. What's the next thing? Because often we get overwhelmed by how are you going to eat this massive meal or how are you going to climb this mountain? The next step, the next bite. As you say, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? Like, it's the next thing. And I, I go to bed with a reminder of what the next thing is, and I pray over it, like, what really? Because that day tomorrow, your tomorrow belongs to Jesus. So it's really good to set before him, like a free will offering, what that tomorrow looks like and invite him to guide it. And your tomorrows might be moving toward your, your, this next year. But it really helps him be sharp and focused to have a clear idea of what the next day holds. I told you this. I remind myself of my goals every day. I remind myself of the goals of worship generation every day. Regularly, I remind myself of my responsibilities with my dad's estate. I remind myself of my goals with my own personal finances every day. What am I doing and why? Where is this going? What's the plan? And I tell people, if people say, well, what if this all goes wrong? Because I have friends that have wealth in the stock market. It's dropped 1,000 points on Friday. It dropped almost 800 today. For, you know, things are blowing up right now. People's lifetime wealth is just disappearing. And there's really hardening havens. Precious metals, EFTs, like, I mean, it's a scramble. I talk to people that are super smart with money, like, 
And people say, like, well, what about real estate? And it's like, you know what? This is how I look at it. If I'm, when I go down, I'm going down with a good plan. Because all my plans in time are working toward eternity anyways. Everything I'm trying to accomplish in time is working for eternity. So I'm not trying to build wealth to leave it behind. I build wealth to expand exponentially that wealth for the kingdom of God when I'm long gone, like Pastor Chuck did. And J.C. Penney. And people like that. But it doesn't own me and it shouldn't own you, nor the fears of people taking stuff. Michael Saylor, the king of Bitcoin, I heard him say recently, you know, two things you worry about when you got a ton of money, he's a billionaire. Is the government just taking it or inflating it? <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. We have to see eternity daily, but we have to have a plan and a sense of direction in time, deliberately, intentionally, daily as well. And I believe Jesus Christ will give it to us. And I believe there's nothing that we run into when we're seeking to obey the Lord and be faithful to the Lord that he does not have the answers for. Because Jesus, I mentioned this recently, but you know, he says to seek, knock, and ask, and all that, and the Spirit will be given to us. But in the book of James, we're told, if we lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it to him. So whatever God would ask you to do and call you to do or me to do in time, space, and matter in this human journey... That call that's uniquely yours and yours and ours individually and then collectively together as a church and in your marriage and your family, whatever it is, he's got the code. He's got the combination. He holds the combination for everything glorious he wants to do in your life for time and eternity. And a reminder again, everything in time is a test and a preparation for eternity. So yeah, we're just one we're one step from eternity, so show up to work on time with King Jesus. Be, be, be aware of what, what the job description is from King Jesus. Make sure you know what the boss expects King Jesus from your life today. <laughs> Make sure that your education is working toward what King Jesus wants to do in and through you. I don't mean formal education. I mean life education. Make sure you manage your time as accountable to King Jesus because it is. And make sure that we're about the Father's business so when the king returns, he can say, you are that good and faithful servant. Because again, in the parable of the minas in Matthew 25, which is absolutely unquestionably dealing with believers giving account for their lives before the Lord at the end, of the, the end of the age, he says, you who had two and made four, well done, enter the joy of your Lord, now you're going to get more. And that's the next dimension. Then the one that had five got ten, he said the same thing. There's no distinction between the one who doubled exponentially what the master gave him. There's no difference between the two that got four and the five that got ten. But there's a big difference between the one that buried it and did nothing. So the balance is we can't be so, oh, Jesus is coming so there's nothing to do. And I'm just waiting, 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 waiting. No, be occupying. Let him find us about the Father's business. William Carey, the great missionary, said... Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And that's the way we're to live. Big vision, big God, big calling, with the reality that we are one step from eternity. There's no time in life to be distracted and trivial and frivolous and carnal. There's all kinds of time to laugh and smile and enjoy the journey, getting laughing fits and dance, whatever. There's plenty of time for that. But there's no, there's no time to be distracted. What did Paul say to the Ephesians? Redeeming the time for the days are evil. So we need to be intentional and deliberate about the value of each day. Because there's a day when it's the last day. And on the last day, I want to be about the plan that the master has for me that I foresaw the night before in the overall scheme of things, and I'm doing it when he shows up. There's nothing better than when the boss shows up and you're busting it for the boss, right? And there's nothing more embarrassing than when the boss shows up and you're slacking. A good reminder that we're just one step from eternity and we live with that balance. The expectation of glory, whether it comes suddenly or we can grapple with it and wrap our mind around it or whether, well, it's going to come 
and then what we're doing with the balance of that longing for eternity because Abraham looked for the seed which had foundation, his builder and maker is God, and he longed for that home, yet Abraham was very faithful and diligent about the business entrusted to him by Jehovah. El Shaddai, God Almighty, as he revealed himself to Abraham. And he was about the business. Faith, faith with works, not the works of the flesh, but faith working. We need to have a big vision, and young people... And grandchildren remind me that they should have a bigger vision than I ever had. Because Jesus Christ is never going to leave anybody without a future and a hope. And with the expectation of great things, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So yes, I do believe the Lord's coming back. But if he takes a thousand years to come back, I'm going to be about the Father's business. Because either way, he's coming back for me and he's coming back for you. We can never lose perspective of that that we're one step from eternity and we need to find that balance to live with the meaning and purpose in time with that concept. Verse 24, we read on. Then David hid in the field and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king, that is Saul, sat on his seat and at that other times on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day for he thought, well, you know, something's happened to him. He's unclean, surely he's unclean. He's going to come to dinner tonight. So it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either today, yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem and said, Please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother had commanded me to be there. And now if I found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore he's not come to the king's table. Then Saul Anger was aroused against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. He literally said, son of a harlot. He, I, he, he blew a gasket. I mean, really, he's saying it's son of a whore. Which is his wife. Do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore sin and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him. By which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time of appointed, the time appointed with David. And a little lad was with him, and then he said to his lad, Now run, go get the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, and do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said, Hey, go carry them to the city. And as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, bowed to the, down three times, and they kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So now this David is really outcast. He, he is in exile and it's, ma it's a major thing. i got to go back to Saul. So let's stick this text, this narrative. Now, Samuel the prophet already told Saul, God has torn the kingdom from you and he's given it to another. So it was already known to Saul that he was on the way out and someone's in the way in. And he determined it had to be David because the people ascribed to him killing thousands and to Saul hundreds, which was correct. And it must have just crushed Saul to see his son recognize the plan of God and the work of God on David's life to be his best friend and to support the work of God. But Saul's like that parent that their kid's going to be the starting pitcher, the goalie, or the quarterback no matter what. It's daddy ball. And if you know what daddy ball is, you know what daddy ball is. Daddy ball is, you know, I'm the coach, my kid pitches. That's daddy ball. It's when four guys are the high school coaches of a team and their four kids are quarterback, running back, and wide receiver. 
It's daddy ball. So if you never heard that term, it's very known in youth sports world, daddy ball. This is daddy ball. And listen to what Saul's saying. And I'll give it like a sports analogy. You're the starting quarterback, not David. I've come this far, worked this hard. You're the quarterback, not him. And Jonathan's like, what are we going to do? He's the quarterback. Everyone knows he's the quarterback. Why are you forcing me to be the quarterback? You know those parents that make their kids do things they really don't want to do? Not moral things, but free will, self-determination things. One of my surfing buddies from the 80s is a very good surfer. When my kids were playing baseball in Costa Mesa, American Little League, one time we were at a game, and he happened to be down there. I hadn't seen him in years, and he said, oh, yeah, my, my, my boy played baseball. And I was like, oh, really? Well you, well, you were a West Coast champion. Was he good? He was like, he's really good, but he won't talk to me. No kidding. He's like, yeah, he's a punk. He, he didn't talk to me. He was the best player in Little League, and he was the best guy. And then we did travel ball and club ball, and he quit. And he should be playing in the big leagues now. That's daddy ball. Where you push it so hard that you're living so vicariously through your children that you just didn't commit them to the Lord to be what they're meant to be. That's what Saul's doing here. Saul's trying to force something for his son. I sent you to the best university. I put the money behind you. I did this. You went to an Ivy League school, and you're letting this guy who dropped out of Chapman be your boss? Like, that's what this is like. And I've seen this. I remember Raul Reese hearing him on the radio one time. He said, you know, you people who put your kids in their sports before church and you made sports more important than church on Sundays, all the club ball, the travel ball, all these things, you made it more important than church. And then you come to me when they're in their 20s wrecking their life and you ask me to fix it. You had your chance. You showed them that your dream vicariously through them meant more to you than King Jesus in this facility. You know how Raul Reese would say that too. He's not pulling any punches. I've seen Saul, and, and I don't want to be Saul, and neither do you. I have all the things I want, yeah, all the things I wanted my kids to do. And after a while, I just realized you, your kid may be a great athlete, but they don't want to play sports. They might be an incredible musician, but they don't want to play the piano. And there comes a point, and I learned this as a coach of the U.S. Surfing, you can pretty much make any kid do what they don't want to do until eighth grade. <laughs> but once they get ninth grade, you can't, make any, you can't make your daughter run track and field. I learned that with Leah. <laughs> you, you can make it a certain way, and, and parents just go over the top. Saul's like that. And here's what happens with this person in this, this scenario, is you get so over the top, First, you're attacking the people that you think are, are holding back what you want for your kids. You're attacking the coach. You're attacking the refs. You're attacking these people and these people. But then you know what happens? You attack your own kids. So it's no longer the umpire's fault. It's not Blue's fault. It's your fault. So instead of throwing a spear at the umpire, you throw a spear at your own kid. That's what happens. You're not just throwing spears at coaches and administrators and athletic directors. When I spent a day with Pete Carroll, the great coach from USC, current coach of the Seahawks. I spent a day with Pete Carroll, and I had a mom come up to me and threw a fit, a surf mom from the U.S. surf team. We were training in Huntington. And I was like, really? I'm hanging out with Pete Carroll? And it's like the worst soccer mom thing I've ever had. That's kind of similar to daddy ball, but not the same. And this mom's just flipping out. You know, the single mom, her son, he's this and that, and she's attacking me and saying all these horrible things to me in front of Pete Carroll. God had a plan with it. And I was so upset. This Pete Carroll, man. Like, I'm hanging out with Pete Carroll. And you're giving me soccer mom right now, man. Like, oh. And uh, she walked away, and I was like, sorry about that. And he goes, that's nothing. You should see USC moms. <laughs> I was always saying, that's nothing. You should see USC moms. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. We don't want to be these people with our grandkids, with our kids we got to let people be who they're called to be and just raise them up in the Lord, set them in the Lord, and respect Jonathan, respecting. Jonathan has the mind of the Lord in this whole situation. His dad doesn't. His dad's fighting God, and he's so mad at his son for not usurping what is God's plan, he throws the spear at him, which is another lesson. You keep throwing spears, you'll never stop throwing spears. 
And if you permit yourself to throw a spear one or two times, you might find yourself unable to stop throwing spears. So you might think it's okay to have a, a, a Coors or a Corona with a taco at Wahoo's, but you know, you were a hard, you had a bad time drinking when you were younger. This is why I could never drink. And you may think, oh, it's no big deal. I'm just having I'm pizza port Friday night, just having a, a beer. That might work okay for you, but you might not be surprised if you don't find yourself drinking hard liquor a year later on a midweek night for no reason. You start throwing spears that you should never be throwing, you may never stop throwing them. You've got to know the line. And if you cross that line, and the first time you throw a spear, you've got to be like, oh, my goodness, what did I just do? Like, you just go like, that is so unacceptable. You need to apologize to David. You need to apologize to everyone at the banquet table. You need to stop it right there. The first time you throw that spear, you'll be like, that, that is just so inappropriate and so uncalled for. And you need to be transparent and deal with it. Because if you don't, you'll start throwing more spears. And you'll throw spears without even thinking about it. And you'll be known for being a spear thrower out of your mind instead of a good king who's a wise king that can be reproved, as it says in the book of Proverbs. Saul is terrifying. Isn't Saul terrifying to us? I mean, he's terrifying to me. I, I, just, I just want nothing to do with like being this woman or this man. Now, we're going to read on chapter 21. It's a short chapter. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to him, like the priest, the king had, has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business in which I send you or which I've commanded you. And I've directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there's only the holy bread, the show bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women, sexual intimacy, then David answered the priest and said to him, well, truly women have been kept from us for at least three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Here's a great story. It's a great story. Well, many of you know this is connected to the New Testament. Because there in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus is walking with the apostles, when they got the wheat in their hands and they're doing this with the wheat, and the Pharisees are like, oh, that's unholy, that's bad, you're transgressing the Sabbath, you're bad people, you know, by what right do you do all this? And Jesus said, have you not read how David ate the showbread? He, Jesus quotes this story. And he quotes it as an example that God looks at the heart and the circumstance much more than the outward or the religious, which is really important. Because as I shared at the memorial yesterday, I know some people, they're never happy, they're always religious, and they say they're Christians and they go to church for decades. But they can never show love and nothing they ever do ever draws people to Christ. They're just judging jury of everyone around them, and they've got religion in their head, they've got the word of God, and they've got a sword. Instead of using it to, to bring forth the kingdom, they use it to cut people down and chop them up. They're like the Pharisees. We have to be really careful that we're not like that. God looks at the heart. He looks at the motives. He, he considers what we're doing not nearly as much as why we're doing what we're doing. And when you find yourself in a difficult situation and you can look back and say, Lord, I, my motives were good. I, I meant good for my relatives. I meant good for the family. I meant good for the company. You can sleep well because there's people who justify what they're doing. It looks like they're doing the right thing, like Saul, right? Saul didn't kill Agag, but he still had a sacrifice. He looks like he's doing the right thing. So Samuel says, does the Lord delight in sacrifices or to obey? But God looks at the heart, and he looks at the motives of the heart. And that's why Rahab can lie and hide in the spies and be in, the, in Hebrews Hall of Faith, chapter 11, and in the book of James. What did you do and why? And by the way, here's another thing in this little, these first six verses that get your attention. When the boss is a tyrant, an authoritarian, probably a full-blown narcissist and everything else, 
it's not well. It's like he says when the evil reign is not well for the city. It's the same thing. When, this, when your boss is Saul, it affects everybody. It makes the priest fearful. Like priests should be men of faith. Ahimelech should be like, David, David, my son, my son, shalom, shalom. How are you? How are things in the palace? Instead, what's it say? He's afraid. Why is he afraid? Because everyone knows Saul's a madman. When you think of politicians above you and people in power, your boss, your politicians, or the matriarch or patriarchs or family, if they make people afraid and move people by fear, it, it, it's, it's contagious. And everyone gets fearful. And you're afraid about everything. You're afraid to step to the right. You're afraid to step to the left because Saul's in power. And instead of showing up where the priests are and saying, shalom, shalom, they think the worst thing. I mean, you would think when King David, the hero of Israel this time, shows up, who's turned the tide against the enemies of Israel, would show up with the priest. Him would be like, bro, what's up, man? Yeah, no, it's not like that. Why are you here? It's like the Soviet Union. Why are you here? What are you doing? It's like the occupation of the Dutch in 43. What are you doing? Why are you here? It's like COVID lockdowns and terror on the planet. What are you doing? Where's your mask? Why are you here? What are you doing? Hey, you, get back over there. It affects everybody. And people might do that above you, but don't you do it for people underneath you. No, the servant Lord Jesus Christ brings faith into every situation. You're a woman of faith when you walk in that room. You're a man of faith when you're on that plane. You're a woman of faith with the family gathering. You're a man of faith with your co-workers. And let them move with fear if they want, you can't make people who are fearful and drink the Kool-Aid of fear stop being fearful. But you can show them what it looks like to live by faith. But here's the problem. When it flows from the top and everyone's a totalitarian authoritarian and striking fear and moving people by fear and they're dictators and they're that way, it stumbles everybody. Because then good people like priests who should have faith, they don't have faith. They're moved by fear. Like church leaders for the last couple of years, they're moved by fear instead of faith. They're moved by fear. What's Saul going to do? What's Caesar going to do? And they're moved by fear. And they quit thinking in faith. They quit forgetting we're the church. And we worship Jesus and we teach the Bible. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. And they forget that. So they start acting all afraid. Then they got to lie. Because totalitarians, Stalins and these people, they, they force people in the end, good people end up lying to keep their sanity. Like when a husband's abusive on his wife, and he cheats on his wife, inevitably he always stumbles his wife. And you see, good women go bad because they have a bad husband that stumbles them. And it's terrible. And usually the worst case scenario, which is the most common case with men like this, is they blame the wife. If she'd been more loving, I would have never cheated on her. And they do that, they play that, I just want to just, oh. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Really, does anyone just say, I'm, I'm a heel I'm, a, I'm an evil man. I cheated on my wife for no reason. Guys never say that. It's like, well, my wife did this. And, my, and, and then the wives, they get stumbled. So godly women, when they trusted someone for 20 years and they find out they're unfaithful, so often not, then all of a sudden they're committing adultery and they're stumbled and they're upset and they quit going to church and all these things happen. And it, it, it does happen all the time. So when the top is bad and is moved by fear and throwing spears, it affects the spiritual people and it affects the godly people and even the people with the heart for God like David. Because now what's David doing? He's lying. Now he's lying. It's all bad. Everything from the top down from Saul is bad. It's fear. It's lying. It's stumbling blocks across the board for all Israel. We have to reject that mindset in the body of Christ. And we have to reject it in our own personal life. Whatever might come down on you like this from above, you have to lay that at the throne of Jesus and, and get the vision of faith. And you bring faith to your morning kitchen table and need to bring it to the freeway and to Adams and Harbor. You need to bring faith to your workplace. You need to bring faith to the body of Christ, to your church. You need to walk in that sanctuary. You need to bring faith. You need to bring equity, lots of equity of faith. You come to this place, you bring faith. You bring love. You bring hope. You bring peace. You bring joy. Even in the day of sorrow, you bring laughter that's rightly put with sorrow. 
Not in this place like the cackling of a fool, but where you can be at a memorial, and one minute you're all crying, and the next minute you're all laughing because they're a Raider fan, and you're a Charger fan, like yesterday. Yeah, that's the, that's the human experience. This picture is so such a bummer because it really goes back to Saul. He's not even in this story, but he's the effect. It's the Saul effect. It's the Joseph Stalin Soviet Union effect. It's the Karl Marx effect. It's a, it's a Charles Darwin effect. It's the it's Adolf Hitler effect. It's the effect of what what happens. So people that should have faith no longer have faith. People that should be telling the truth start to lie because everyone's running for fear of what the big bad boogeyman above them is going to do. You just can't live like that. I refuse, I refuse to live like that. I refuse to live like that. I'll respect people because Christ died for everybody. There's beauty in every human being, even the most degenerated fallen ones. I just, I, I just refuse to live like that. I refuse to be a part of the, the masses that will accept things. And I try not to be stumbled by things above me. We've all been through this together in the last couple of years. And I try to make sure that I'm not stumbling anybody. I've tried not to stumble any of you during the last couple of years. I've tried my best. You know, why is he dancing? But at least I didn't stumble you. Don't go for the fear. Try not to lie because there's evil people above you. Try not to lose faith because you think the worst because the people above you think the worst. Try to keep your faith, try to keep the truth, and do the best you can to find a way through it. Amen? Yeah. Okay, now we close out the chapter, verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Dog, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. This guy makes money for Saul. He's like he's a stockbroker. He makes money for Saul. He does not like David. This is bad news in the next chapter. Verse 8. And David said to him, like, is there not here on hand a spear or sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business requires haste. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, that, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. You, if you will take it, uh, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, there's none like it, give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, that's a Philistine. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Isn't it interesting they call him the king? Did you catch that? They call him the king. They're like, yeah, everyone knows who the king is of Israel. Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in the dance of saying, Saul is slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretending madness in their hands. He scratched on the doors of the gate and let the saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, look, you see this, this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman that you have brought this, this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David fiends madness. And again, this is why we don't want to stumble people. This is all, this really is a chain reaction of Saul. Now the Lord's allowed it and David's being tested. It's funny because when you read about the Lord's summary of David's life, you don't ever read like how he, you don't read this stuff. Because sometimes like we have stuff where like, why are you acting crazy? Well, you don't even know, like, these things that you'd be really embarrassed about, you think, I wonder what the Lord thought about that? Well, sometimes when you read about David, you go like, what does God think about him, like, lying like, like this and that, and these priests are going to die, and all this stuff, he's acting like a madman, he's got, he's drooling on his beard. There's silence. And I'll tell you in eternity, there's silence on our shortcomings. There's nothing but glory in eternity. Maybe a little bit of glory compared to a lot of glory, but there's nothing but glory in eternity. So far as the east is from the west, has he removed our transgressions from us? And there's no more tears and sorrow. So that would be the inability to think about the things that we're embarrassed of and would like to forget about in the human experience. So can I just get an amen? Amen. Like, I don't, that's not, that movie doesn't play. Now, the devil plays that movie. Your family may play that movie. And your friends may play that movie, that YouTube clip of your worst moments. But it doesn't exist in eternity. So you're drooling on the beard. That's you and the Lord. <laughs> Ladies are <laughs> that's, that's you and the Lord. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to know what he thinks about it. Just figure it out. Quit throwing spears, right? Now, the last thing, I love this. When David needed something, he really needed something, he needed a weapon. When he really needed something, he needed a weapon, 
And the weapon he received was the weapon he earned when he defeated Goliath. It was just a nice little happy ending to our chapters tonight. That what you sow, you reap. And when you cast your bread upon many waters, it'll come back to you. Good measure pressed down. And if you want to take steps of faith and fight Goliath when you're full of faith, there's still money in the bank of faith, even when you're running for your life, lying and terrified of the king. That's still equity in your account. You can draw, you can draw that. You can draw that. You can draw that. You can draw that from your account. If you sow faith and you have great things of faith that you do with the Lord and you have a dark day, because we do have a dark day, it is nice to know on the dark day the Lord can hand you back the sword of Goliath. Can you imagine when David received the sword of Goliath? He's lying. He's about to fiend madness, but in the midst of it, he's got this reminder, the sword of the Goliath, that day, that day when he charged right through the valley and Saul said, I'm going to feed you the birds. And David said, I'm going to feed you and your whole army to the birds. And ran right at him. That sword, what a reminder of his faith. Just like the bear and the lion when he declared it to Saul. And now it's a reminder of God's faithfulness to him as he's going through the darkest time in his life. He's going to be on the run for years. And it's going to be unfair and unjust. But he has the sword of Goliath. God gives us those things we need to get through the dark day. But I will tell you, the more you've lived well on the bright day and the good day, the better off it is for you when you face the dark day. You've made more deposits and you have more returns. Leave tonight with this thought, what it must have felt like in that very dark moment, because we've all had dark moments, to have the high priest come out and hand you that sword of a great victory from bygone time. And the smile, you know, I got the Pipe Masters trunk, so when the Pipe Masters in an 84, little short shorts, they look like Jimmy Connor tennis shorts. They're pink and white. And they're in a drawer, and everyone saw, the kids are like, how did you ever wear those things? You know, like, but everyone's trying to look at those things, and I'll tell you what it does, it puts a smile on my face. It reminds me of a really good day and a great victory. I just go back to being a grandpa and a pastor and everything else that God's doing in my life. You need those things. Build, build those deposits, take those steps of faith, have those victories, and give those things to the Lord. You never know he's going to get that sword right back to you. He didn't need the sword after he defeated Goliath. He's like, he's in the afterglow of the victory, but in a dark day, hey, now is when he needed the sword. Here's the sword of Goliath. Don't ever forget that I was with you, and I will always be with you. I will never even forsake you. So body of Christ, whatever we're facing, we need to be encouraged. Know that he's on the throne. He's got our back. He's going to take care of us. It's all there. Don't throw spears. Reclaim your swords of victory. In Jesus' name.